I want to start with a, uh, a story. I've told it a couple of times over the years, but it's been a while. It, it, it's a story that illustrates a, 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 a big uh, point that I've been trying to make for a couple of weeks. It's a story about um, a, a friend of TLCC named Phil Muncie. Uh, uh, Phil has been here uh, to uh, preach on several occasions. He's one of our favorites. He's an incredibly dynamic speaker, and he's been a personal friend of mine since I was a teenager. And I want to tell a story about Phil, and I particularly want to tell a story about how Phil met, uh, how Phil entered a new phase of his area of destiny where he connected to what he believed uh, God had been preparing him for all of his life. And this happened when he met Joel Osteen. Now, I want to make a comment about that in a moment, but let me just say that Phil is uh, the chairman of Joel's network of pastors called the Champion Network, which is, is a network of, I'm not sure how many pastors now, probably a thousand pastors and Phil hosts a show on XM Radio, Joel Osteen's channel. Frankly, I've never heard it, but I'm sure it's great. And um, uh, he 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 is a, a, a plays a big role at Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, where Joel is senior pastor. He speaks there a lot. That's I think the largest single site church in America. So so Phil meeting Joel was a big pivot moment in his life. Now let me pause and just say this: Joel Osteen. Uh, and for some reason, I feel it's important I say this today. Um, Joel Osteen is uh, obviously an incredibly popular preacher, one of the most popular actually in history, just looking at the data. Uh, he also, like most prominent people, has his share of critics, both outside of the Christian family and within the Christian family. And um, I want to talk just for a moment about our posture towards those that kind of thing here at TLCC. And it would be to say that wherever we can, we always find a way to be for people. And this is why, uh, this is part of what it means, at least to me, to be a non-denominational Christian church. I have friends, and you may see in our pulpit, one week you may see a conservative Baptist. Uh, a few weeks later, you might see a Reformed Presbyterian. A few weeks later, you might see a Nazarene. I'm speaking at the Nazarene. I don't, I'm not even totally sure. I don't know a lot about the Nazarenes. I just know they're a historic denomination. I'm speaking at their district conference here in a few weeks. Uh, uh, I, I, you may see one week a Pentecostal. and you, I've had an Anglican bishop who's a fervent uh, uh, Bible believer, believer, passionate follower of Jesus, who we were doing ministry with in Africa around the AIDS pandemic, speak in our church. This morning, um, this morning uh, I, I mentioned Dr. David Anderson was sitting in the room because he's here almost every Sunday. Dr. David was the pastor of, of the large and kind of most prominent Presbyterian church here in town for some 30 years. And he retired from that, and now he leads a ministry to significant media figures in New York City. But Dr. David Anderson, I had him stand this morning. He's sitting over here every week. You know, I'm not sure how old he is, a good bit older than I am, probably older than most everybody in this room. And he's, he comes every week in a beautiful suit and a tie, and he looks sharp. And I wonder sometimes how well, he must think I'm crazy and we're crazy, but they, for whatever reason, they love our church. My point is, I'm for him. I'm for the conservative Baptist. I'm for the name something. 
as long as we can have fundamental agreement about the great creeds of the church and, and essentially what the gospel is, we our posture is we find things to be for. And, and, and that, that this is part of, to me, what it means to be big inside. So I know when I mention Joel Osteen, there are a lot of people who say, oh, I love Joel. And then there are some people who say, well, I saw this or read this or whatever. And I'm just going to say that this isn't about Joel. I just don't want Joel to take away from the bigger point I'm about to make. And I want you to understand our posture. So Phil Muncy plays a big role in Joel's ministry. For instance, when in October, did everybody understand what I just said about we are as if we can find any way to be for people? You say, well, what's this? Here's a great scriptural example. Now I'm taking sermon time, so give me a couple minutes at the end to get us all on the same page, okay? Somebody came to Jesus one day and they said, Jesus, somebody's down there and they're preaching in your name, but they're not here with us. And they probably weren't saying everything, I'm sure, the, exactly the way Jesus would say it, right? But they were preaching in his name, and they said, should we go shut him down? And Jesus said, no, do not stop him, Mark 9. Do not stop him, for whoever is not against us is for us. And I would just encourage you, in all of life, but especially within the Christian family, try your best to find what you can be for and not against. And this is part of what it means to be big inside. So when F Phil plays a big role in Joel's uh, ministry, for instance, Joel's holding a Yan an event at Yankee Stadium on May 3rd. And now if you want to get into controversy, he's holding a, a stadium on May 3rd with special guest. Are you ready for this? Kanye West. <laughs> so anyway, uh, <laughs> Uh, oh boy, won't that be fun. And uh, the last time he did Yankee Stadium, I had the privilege to be on stage, and it was an amazing, and there were thousands of people who repented of their sins, confessed their faith in Jesus, and gave their life to Christ in that event. So anyway, I'm for that part of it. Some of the, you know, it doesn't mean I agree with everything. It doesn't mean I would do it that way. It doesn't mean I couldn't find things to criticize. It just means... Having acknowledged that, if they're not against us, they're for us, and I think we should be for people as much as we can be. So Phil will play a cute, thank you. Thank you. So some 30 years or so ago, um, uh, Phil Muncy and his wife Jeannie started a church with just the two of them and, and their two children in Los Angeles, California. Started from nothing. And in those early years, they had very little funding. I relate to that because when Sharon and I came here 28 years ago, there were a lot of lean years. But we came because of a sense of calling, and you, you don't get into the business I'm in uh, because there's, 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 a, there's a payday at the end. You do it because you feel called to it. And so I relate with Phil and Jeannie being financially, frankly, impoverished. Um, uh, but Phil decided, Phil's a big inside guy, and Phil decided that he was going to save a few dollars uh, so that he and his wife could regularly visit someplace beautiful uh, where people of accomplishment spend time. And he believed that this was important in order to get out of his small, impoverished mentality and to stimulate his senses in a different kind of world with different ways and thoughts. 
And Phil decided that when they entered into that world, that he would not act poor, which he was financially at that time, but that he would, he would act like he belonged there and that he would act generously towards everybody in that world and especially the people who served him. So Phil chose a hotel near his then small church property outside of Los Angeles. I don't remember exactly which hotel, and I wouldn't share that level of detail as you'll hear in the rest of the story. You'll understand why. But let's say it was the Ritz-Carlton. It was the nicest hotel in that part of Los Angeles. This hotel was situated in a beautiful setting with dramatic views of the ocean, lush lawns, cultivated landscaping. The lobby featured expensive art. The interior design was warm and welcoming, and Phil saved enough money so that he and his wife, Jeannie, could eat a small breakfast in the restaurant every few weeks or so. He would, in those early years, drive his jalopy of a car and park it several blocks away from this hotel and walk onto the property because he was embarrassed to drive his car onto the property. But nonetheless, uh, he, he, they would go into this place and they'd go and they'd have breakfast there. He said sometimes they only had enough money to order an English muffin and tea. But nonetheless, he did this as a discipline. And later when they had more funding and a nicer car, he would drive his car into the hotel property, he'd have it valet parked, and he would always generously tip the valet. In fact, he established a relationship with this valet. He knew who he was, he knew about his family, and he always over-tipped. Even when he just had enough money for English muffins and tea, he would always over-tip the valet. And they would go inside, stay there as long as it was acceptable, look at the ocean, appreciate the art, watch how people of means enjoyed their leisure time, and so on. And Phil always practiced generosity towards the staff. One day, as I remember it now, about 20 years ago, Joel and Victoria o Osteen were on vacation, and they stayed at that hotel. Joel had just burst onto the scene and was quickly becoming a household name. And on Sunday morning, while on their vacation, Joel called for his car and he asked the valet for directions to a large church that he thought was nearby, Joel thought was nearby. And the valet said, you know, sir, that's, that's about an hour away. And uh, I don't think you'll be able to get there on time. But there's a smaller church not far from here. And the pastor there is a guy named Phil Muncy, and he is an incredibly nice person. And I know that you can get there in just a few moments, and you really like Pastor Phil, and you really like the church. And on a whim, Joel Osteen took the advice of this valet, and he drove to Phil's church, walked in the door, met Phil, and Phil's life was changed forever because of this connection he made to what Phil has ended up believing was the next step in God's big plans for his life. And so all of this happened because Phil decided to habitually leave his small world and impoverished ways and enter into a world that seemed beyond him. Somehow, I don't understand it, but this practice opened the possibility for a chain of events of new realities to occur in his life. 
It's not necessarily a logical or sequential thing that can be explained in a formulaic way. But let's all agree that if Phil wouldn't have driven his old jalopy from his small, struggling to survive world and entered that world that was beyond him and then lived generously in it, none of this, none of this that Phil now spends his life involved in would ever have happened. Now, when I tell that story, I can't help but think about a passage from the prophecy of Isaiah, where Isaiah has God saying this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, I've often heard this explained as if God is saying, hey, I am so smart and you are so dumb. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. But in fact, when you read this in its proper context, which I will in a moment, God is saying, I have higher thoughts about your life and future than you do, and I act in higher ways. The word ways there in its Hebrew etymology, uh, the Old Testament having been written in Hebrew, in its Hebrew etymology, the word ways there is referring to a way of acting that gets us from where we are to where we want to go. So that's, you would think about a high way. So God says, I have higher thoughts and I have higher ways. Now, when you look at the context here in Isaiah, Isaiah is actually prophesying to the Jews who were at that time in exile in Babylon. They were in a terrible place, a small, low-thought, impoverished, exiled place. They weren't where God wanted them to be or where they wanted to be, but they lost hope for their future. They were resigned to their present circumstance. But God said, you have low thoughts about your future, but I have high thoughts about your future. You are acting in low ways to get to your future, but I'm acting in high ways. Isaiah 55 verse 8 you see this now in part of its context. I wish I had time to read the whole chapter. It's all good stuff. It's God saying, I have higher thoughts. I have higher ways than you do. I want to get you from where you are to where I see you being able to go. Isaiah 55 verse 8, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. God says, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And then God says to these people in exile, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands and on it goes. I hope you see the picture. I get so excited preaching about this kind of stuff. I wish I could preach this kind of stuff every week, but I have to preach a lot of different stuff. But, but I, if I could choose, maybe this is what I'd talk about. This idea that these people in exile 
who seem to be separated from their God-inspired future, from God's vision for them as a people, could not see themselves being able to leave that world and enter that better world. But God said, my thoughts about you are higher than your thoughts. God said, my way of acting is higher than your ways. And somehow or another, if you will agree with me, God says, I'm going to get you from where you are to where you're supposed to be. So, so over the last few weeks, we've been teaching about foresight about how God has plans for our lives and our life together that are so big that human eyes can't see, human ears can't hear, and human minds can't conceive what God has prepared for us. But as we've taught from 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 3, and beyond, the fact is that Paul says we can know these things by the Holy Spirit working in our spirit. We can see where we're supposed to be in this place that's beyond human comprehension. We can see it with the eyes of our heart. We can see it in the depths of who we are. We can know it in the place where you know the things you know you know. But here's the deal, guys. We've made that point. But here's the next step. When we vision or see a God-inspired future, we must then think and act in ways that connect us to what we see. We must think higher thoughts and act in higher ways. If God has higher thoughts and if God acts in higher ways, we can't act with low thoughts and with low ways. We have to, if you please, get in that old jalopy of a car and drive from our low thoughts into God's high thoughts. We have to find ways to make a connection with what God has planned for us. Somehow, back to the Phil Muncy story, surely you see this by now, Phil thought and acted higher than his present low circumstance and connected in some way with God's higher ways and thoughts. Again, I don't completely understand understand this, yet at the same time, I get it spiritually. I know that when we see big and dream big and pray big and act big, that something small can turn into something really big. So let's say it like this today, and I'm going to pick up kind of where I left off last week. Now, next week, we're going to pivot and move to a different way of thinking about this series that we're in about foresight. But let me, let me say it this way today. When we are big inside, we open to a more and better future. Last week, I spent quite a bit of time talking about what I mean when I say someone's big inside, but basically, it's all formed on the words of Jesus in, in the Sermon on the Mount and in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, it's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. But in this uh, this sermon that Jesus did, the capstone is a really famous passage of Scripture that kind of sums up a lot of what Jesus was saying about a lot of things, about all of life. It's where Jesus says in Luke 6.38, if you give, you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full measure, pressed down, shaken together to make room for more and running over. Everybody, if you would, please say more. Somehow now when we, when we act generously towards all of life, 
It comes back to us, and it comes back to us as more. What measure you use in giving, note the words, large or small, it will be used to measure what is given back to you. Now this verse is in the middle of a teaching about living a generous life in a multitude of ways. Sometimes folks take this passage and they only apply it to money. And, and, and that's appro it's appropriate to apply it to money, and I will apply it to money. But he's talking about much more than that. He's talking about an approach towards life, a generous approach towards life. This passage is in the sermon where Jesus taught us things like to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us, to pray for those who mistreat us, to go the extra mile. Uh, if someone, Jesus said, ask you for your coat, don't just give them your coat, give them your shirt as well. This is where Jesus taught that where someone slaps us on the cheek, we're supposed to what? Turn the other cheek. This is where Jesus taught us that we reap what we sow. And he talked about this in a number of explicit ways. This is where he said, if you sow mercy, you reap mercy. If you sow judgment, you reap judgment. If you sow forgiveness, you reap forgiveness. If you sow giving, you reap blessing. And that these things come back to us according to our measure according to whether we're doing these things in small, low-thought ways or in large, high-thought ways. We choose the measure to which we're generous towards everything in life. And according to the measure we choose, Jesus said, it comes back to us. It has to do with how we think and how we act. Jesus called us to an exceptional generosity of spirit. He calls us to a high-minded, open-handed, wholehearted benevolence in our approach to people and all of life. He set the standard so high that we, in fact, can only live this way if he helps us, which is part of the point. We need him to help us. I'm not a good turn-the-other-cheeker in my own life. I am small inside when it comes to turning the other cheek. But by the power of Jesus in my life over the years, I have become more and more inclined to turn the other cheek and not punch back. I still do Muay Thai, but it's not because I want to hurt the person who hurts me. You get my point? That's not in my nature, but because of Jesus being involved in my life, I am becoming and have become over the years more and more generous in the way that I'm approaching all of life. I mean, look here how Jesus says this in the message translation. I'm now going back to this sermon where Jesus is talking in Luke chapter 6 where he said, if you give, it'll be given back to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, making room for more. The measure you choose, large or small, it comes back to you. Here's a little more of that passage from Luke 6 from the message translation. This is Jesus. Live generously. You'll never, I promise, regret it. Live out this God-created identity the way our Father lives toward us, generously and graciously, even when we're at our worst. Our Father is kind, you be kind. 
Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Be easy on people. You'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life. You'll find life given back, but not merely given back. Given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. I mean, as followers of Jesus, this is the kind of thing that messes our lives up in the best way possible and takes us from low thought and low action lives to high thought and high action lives because this calls us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be big inside. So when we live generously, we always receive more and better life. Again, this applies to everything, every relationship, every thought and action. Last week we talked though, about to, uh, to, to a narrow part of this. I want to acknowledge, to a, we talked about one aspect of this. We talked about how this applies to our financial resources. I'm going to pick up on that this week, and we'll pivot to talk about different things next week. But I taught about how money, in particular, plays an outsized role in our lives. Whether we like it or not, it just does. Scripture shows us this time and again. Uh, for instance, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy uh, and said, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Important statement. He didn't say money is evil. Money is not evil. Money only has the value that we attach to it. But the, 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 the Scripture here is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, Paul said, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus, in fact, taught us that we actually have to make a conscious choice as to whether we want to serve God or serve money. Here we are in Luke's gospel again. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. He said, you have to make a choice. Which one are you going to serve? And when you serve God, then you use money in his service. But you have to make a choice what you're going to serve. And then, of course, Jesus taught us that what we do with money tells us what is in our heart. So, again, Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is hugely important. Somehow or another, what we do with money in a unique way reveals what's in our heart. It might surprise you to know this, but Jesus talked about money in 16 out of 38 parables. There are over 2,000 verses in Scripture dedicated to the subject of money and possessions. There are approximately 500 verses on the subject of prayer, approximately 500 verses on the subject of faith. But money and possessions over 2,000 times, and giving is mentioned 2,160 times. That's eight more times than believing is mentioned. That's three more times than love is mentioned. I am trying to make the point, this is a big subject. Look, guys, I don't completely know how to explain this. But somehow, when we get the money thing right, when we have high thoughts and act in high ways with our finances, when we learn to be generous in this area of our lives, somehow it's a huge step towards being generous in every area of our lives. When we're 
When we have high thoughts and high actions about money, it damages small thinking in small ways. It opens us up to more in our hearts and literally, according to Scripture, it opens heaven in ways that positions us to connect to the more and better that God sees for our futures. Now, you may say, let's talk about the elephant in the room. You may say, okay, pastor, you talked about this last week. Why are you talking about it for a second week in a row? I'm, I'm going to ask a question some of you are not asking, but some of you might rightfully be, and it's fine. It's a fair question. I'm going I'm to explain. I'm going to explain why, because I think it's important you know my motivation here. First of all, there are a lot of people here who weren't here last week. Okay, so that's just the practicality of it. I think this is an important message, and often when we have an important message to share, we'll do it for two or three weeks. If everybody would come every week, I'd only say it one time, maybe, and we'd be in better shape. Secondly, it's good for those who heard some of this last week. Now, I have a whole different message, but as I'm talking about this particular topic in a different way, it's good for us to hear a different, a, a, the same truth in different ways because that's when it gets in us and it becomes transformative. The fact is, statistics say that you'll forget about 95% of what I said today within three or four hours after you leave. It makes me sick to my stomach, but that's what the statistics say. Not about me, about most speakers. I don't know, maybe you'll retain. I don't know. I'm not even going to guess. But it's one reason why you hope people take notes while you're speaking, because that increases memory retention and so on and so forth. But the fact is, it's important to come back to things and say them again so that people get it in them. And the third thing is, and, and I, I don't want to patronize when, when I say this, but the third reason I'm going to talk about it is because I, I love you. All you TLCC people, I love you with all my heart. And I want you to find the blessing that comes when you give generously and, and when you live generously. Um, again, I don't want to patronize you, but I'm going to tell you that when I was a child, my parents blessed my life and set me up for success because they taught me about how to manage money in a godly way. That included tithing, that included giving, that included not putting money on a credit card that I couldn't pay off the next month, that included proper budgeting, that included a whole lot of things, Be that included pay your bills on time, if not on time, pay them early. It, my parents taught me things that set me up for success in my life and have caused me to be blessed in ways that goes beyond how I would ever have expected to be blessed having chose the vocation of being a pastor, okay? I'm just going to tell you that my parents taught me to not measure small into life, but to measure large into life and to expect to get more back. And my experience, I know this is going to shock you as a 57 year old man is that my life has been blessed beyond my highest expectations. God had higher thoughts about me than I had about myself and he's blessed me in ways that are beyond what I ever would have expected. Now here's a mysterious truth. By the way, aren't you guys a fantastic audience today? I mean, you are just clapping away and you know what that means? I'm going to preach longer, so be careful, all right? Here's a mysterious truth. Scripture teaches that when we sow money, we reap something back more and better than money. It's like there's a currency exchange between heaven and earth where God takes our generosity and exchanges it into a different currency. 
He takes our generosity and gives us back something so much better than money. Now, the fact is that often there are financial blessings included in that, but that can't be our motivation, and that can't be our primary expectation. God gives us things back that are more important than money, even when it includes financial blessings. So check out these passages. They speak for themselves. But I just want to show you exactly what Scripture says. Just a few Scriptures about this. Hear this. What am I saying? There's an exchange. We do something as simple as give money, and then God gives us back something better than money. Here we go. Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth. Now, I want you to notice something. The fact that people are, the rich are not condemned. Okay? In God's mind, there wasn't such a thing as the filthy rich. It doesn't mean everybody's supposed to be rich. Right? It, 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 but I'm just making the point that he didn't command the rich to not be rich. He commanded the rich to have a proper attitude about why they had what they had. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way... They will, here's the exchange. What are they doing? They're sharing. They're being generous. What is God promising? In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What is God saying? Be generous and be willing to share. Abracadabra. I'm going to bring back life that is truly life. Do you see that? Here's Jesus in Luke. Jesus says, if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with, here are the magic words, true riches. Is money in and of itself true riches? The answer is, of course not. We all know that. That's why it's always about more than money. He says, listen, if you'll... If you prove trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, I'm going to bring back to you true riches. And that's when he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one or love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Here's, here's a passage from gospel, the, Mark of, the, the, the Gospel of Mark that's amazing. Then Peter spoke up and said, we have left everything to follow you. I mean, that's a big statement, right? We gave everything. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive. Who's saying this? This is Jesus saying this. Will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. It doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect, but in the age to come, eternal life. One more passage. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. He said, remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to bless you abundantly. Hear this passage. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. So, it's amazing. Somehow or another, this particular thing carries an unusual weight 
and brings unusual potential in the way God promises to bring more and better things into our life. Now, last week we discussed how that tithing is the first step of Christian generosity. So once every year or a year and a half or two years, I speak on this subject. If your first time at TLCC was last week or this week, please, please, please don't think that this is all we talk about. I'll come back to this again because it's so important. You know, again and again, you know, a year from now or a year and a half from now or two years from now, but I, it's important that I share this with you. Tithing shows, to sum up kind of what Scripture teaches us about this, that we put God first. Tithing shows that we acknowledge God as the owner over everything in our lives. Tithing shows that we trust God. Tithing gives us God an opportunity to bless us in supernatural ways. By the way, the word tithe literally means, you just look it up in a dictionary, tithe means 10%. A tithe has always been understood since the time of, Ab since the time of Abraham to be the first 10% of our income. And people of faith for thousands of years have long believed and practiced that the tithe is holy and it's to be returned to God. Last week, I taught at some length, and I won't this week, I'll sum it up. I taught at some length about how tithing began with Abraham all the way back in Genesis. His relationship with God was based on faith not law, but faith, and he tithed in response to being in covenant with God and because he was blessed by God. And tithing was then continued from, from that time forward through Abraham's seed, his children, those who came after him. Tithing was practiced under the law. It was practiced under the time of the kings in the Old Testament. It was practiced by the prophets. And Jesus said that you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Jesus was actually talking about something else, and he made the point. It's like, here's really how you have to think about this. All the Jewish people practiced tithing. It was, you did that as surely as you breathed, as surely as you practiced the Sabbath, as surely as you, there's every, Jesus obviously telling us we should tithe. He, he tithed then, and all those first Christians were Jewish followers of Jesus. They clearly tithed. It was an assumed practice. That's what they did. Did they breathe? Yes. Did they tithe? Yes. It had happened for thousands of years. But Jesus said that when we, we shouldn't substitute tithing for things that are even more important. Please don't listen to me today and think that what I'm saying, because I'm emphasizing this, that tithing is the only thing or the most important thing. Jesus said tithe, but don't think that keeps you from practicing generosity in the other life. Don't think you can tithe and not be merciful. Don't think you can tithe and be a critical person. Don't think you can tithe and not be honest in other areas of your life. Okay, it's not a substitution. It's a part of this bigger picture of what it means to live life generously. Okay, so Jesus said you should tithe, but don't forget even things that are more important. 
And this idea that you get back what you give, but more and better, is particularly true when it comes to tithing. Probably the best known and most explicit passage of Scripture on this subject, and one that every pastor refers to when they teach on this subject, because it's so powerful, comes from the prophet Malachi, who was prophesying at the end of the Old Testament about what's going to happen in the New Testament. And he says, he has God saying, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I mean, wow. God says, test me in this and see if I won't respond by opening heaven up and pouring out blessings that are more and better. All right? I, I, I hear a lot of great stories about tithing. I'm about to start wrapping things up here. But I heard a great story about tithing uh, from, from a, 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 a woman in our church named Pam Briganti. And uh, it was so good, I asked somebody to get a camera and just to, just to put a camera on her while she told her story. I want you to check this out. It's about four minutes long, and then I'll wrap this up. So my journey actually started back in February of 2019, just about a year ago at this point. And at that time, I was just about four or five months pregnant, not in a great spot financially, emotionally, physically. I couldn't really work because I wasn't feeling well, which really started to send my family into a financial spin out. And so I, I've heard the pastor talk about tithing many times, many, many times, and I'd kind of hear it, and I would say, okay, I'm going to, someday when I'm making more money, I'm going to jump on board. <laughs> um, I had a mentor uh, train me on what it looked like to tithe on my business and my household. My husband received a book about tithing. Someone had given me a book about tithing, and it was just, I could start to feel this tug on my heart. I mean, hard tug. And so I remember speaking to my husband, John, about, babe, I, 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 I'm feeling really convicted about tithing, but we're not really in a financial spot for us to give 10% of our income. And honestly, at the time, I really ran the finances in the household. So he didn't really know that we were starting the month each month with negative money. And my husband, oh, I'm getting goosebumps even thinking about it. He said to me, he said, babe, do you believe everything in the Bible? I said, I do. He said, well, why would you not believe this part about tithing when God says, you know, trust me in this and test me in this? So he was all gung-ho about tithing. And so I'll never forget May 5th, I'm sitting in the glass classroom, my hands shaking, Lord Jesus, please help me <laughs> because I don't see it. I know I'm trying to control this. I know, I know you're trying to shift me in, in releasing control because it's just who I am naturally. And I wrote out my, my card, shaking, crying. I, I remember feeling like this, this is not good. Like we, we don't even have any money. And so I did it as my husband and I left the church. He said, so babe, did, did you, you know, tithe on our, you know, did we tithe 10%? I said, I, I, yeah, we, I did, and I'm thinking, like, this is it. We're not going to be able to eat. <laughs> We're not going to be able to pay the mortgage. And I'm telling you, two days later, I got a call from a friend of mine that runs a country club and says, hey, bud, do you still do photos? Yeah, I do. She says, hey, well, can you come in? We need headshots. And if it's okay with you, we'll pay you about, like, $1,500. I'm like, 
$1,500, yes, I'm there. I mean, and the story just kind of unravels from there. I can tell you a gazillion things that have happened financially and just, we've been, we were blessed. I had a beautiful baby shower. My, my best friend blessed us with this beautiful shower where we were gifted. I, I didn't have to get anything from my daughter for like, like the first four months. <laughs> I didn't have to pay for formula, diapers, Nothing, even at this point, she has clothes until she's like two years old. Then around September, October, I had put my feelers out there. I wasn't sure if I wanted to continue my business. Anyway, long story short, a company found me, a really big company, a marketing company found me and offered me a really big job. And in that same day where I was offered this position at this company, Olivia called me and, and said, hey, you know, we were thinking about you at the church and we have this position, the weekends operation manager, we wanna offer you the position. So I go from drowning to two jobs, a photography um, partnership with this country club where now I became their house photographer. So in a moment where I felt like I can't even keep my head above water, here we are a year later and I don't want you to hear, it's because it's not just about the financial gain that we've had, but the peace, the, the peace in my marriage. And that only, be, that came from me trusting May 5th of saying, look, Lord, I don't know how this is gonna happen. I am releasing control. I know that you've got me, I can't see it, but I know I'm gonna be okay. And since then, in those months where we were starting with negative money, Every single month, we were okay. I've shared this story with a few of my friends and now they're tithing and my mother's tithing. And I'm just, I'm fired up about it because I'm like, if you gotta let go. Let go and let God, release the control, allow him to just bless your life and bless your family and bless those that are around you because if you try to hold on to it, this is all you'll have. He could do more with that 10% than you can do with 100%. So. I just implore you to say, join me on this tithing journey and, and let, let God work his, work his magic and his miracles. Can, can you understand why when I hear stories like this all the time, I'm excited to talk about this subject? And let me tell you how much coaching she had for that. I said, I called her Thursday, had somebody hook a, get us together on a, on a conference call and said, would you mind looking at a camera and telling your story? That's, that was it. And I hear stories like this all the time. Let me wrap up this talk. An essential part of being big inside is being a part of something bigger than yourself and thinking and acting for a better future for others, not just yourself. This is to say that part of this principle now is that God uses now our resources to advance his kingdom, to do good in this world. And to live big lives, we need to see ourselves as part of something bigger than ourselves. We must serve something bigger than ourselves. And that something is a someone. We must worship God and we must serve his cause. And the gospel is the biggest cause of all. And that's why a higher thought and way life embraces the big idea of life stewardship. I don't have time to get into this, but this is the bigger idea. Life stewardship is the biblical teaching that God is the owner of all that is, 
all that we are and all that we have, and that he's given us the responsibility to manage and make more of all that is in our domain and to do this ultimately for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom. So essentially, we say this about everything in our lives. We say, God, everything I am, everything I have, is to be used in your service. My life is not about me, not first. It's about you. Life stewardship's about everything. You know, when we dedicate babies here at TLCC, it's about stewardship. It's about a parent saying, God gave me this child. This is God's child, and he's asked me to raise this child. Now, of course, it's also proper to say, that's my child. But you understand the bigger idea is that this is God's son or daughter, and I have a responsibility to raise them up in a way that honors God. Life stewardship says this about everything in our lives. We say it's all his, and it's to be used in whatever way he chooses. And somehow, my closing statement, it's a long one if you're on your life notes. Somehow when we do this, we connect to God's thoughts and God's ways, and he takes a fi the finite that we have, the small, and connects it to the infinite reality that he is. And he uses whatever we offer for his glory, and he blesses our lives in ways that human eyes can't see, and human ears can't hear, and the human mind can't conceive. A big inside approach to life allows God to take a little and to make a lot. And I want that for every one of you. So. Faithful, you